the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. I hope everybody had a good weekend. A better Sunday night than and into Monday morning that was had in Chicago, that's for sure. I live in Chicago, for those of you who have not listened to the show previously. Get up early to do morning drive show in Chicago. And uh, from about midnight this morning till about 6 a.m. Chicago time, you had a downtown area of Chicago, the Magnificent Mile, the famous Mag Mile, Michigan Avenue, with the neighborhoods known as the Gold Coast and River North that were under siege by those, uh, what's the phrase that Nicole Hannah-Jones, founder of the 1619 Project, uses? The Pulitzer Prize winner. Symbolic takings? Yes, symbolic takings. Symbolic lootings, symbolic smashing, symbolic grabbing, symbolic violence against police. All of that was happening, uh, so much so that Chicago police had to scramble, shut down the main business drags, shut down on and off ramps into the city center to try to quell the violence that was allegedly in response to a police-involved shooting on the south side of Chicago. But really, that was just the thinly veiled predicate for what these individuals wanted to do anyway. The same individuals who descended upon the city and engaged in similar violent activity just a couple of months ago, and then the Antifa variety. This was mostly young black men and women in the city based on all the video that's been posted by not just news stations, but on social media as well. And um, this is consistent with the response you get to appeasement. This is just Chicago following the same approach that Seattle did, following the same approach that Portland did. And what do you get when you appease thugs? You get thuggery. And so now you have an area that represents about 60 to 70 percent of uh, the city's revenue that is just torn apart. There have been 100 arrests. We'll see how many of those turn into actual prosecutions per the uh, news on Friday that uh, the Black Lives Matter leader in uh, New York City that was arrested for assaulting a police officer had his charges dismissed by the state's attorney there, district attorney there, Cyrus Vance. Well, we've got a state's attorney in Chicago, Cook County. You may have heard of her, Kim Fox. Uh, She of Jussie Smollett fame, that French actor, Jussie Smollett. And uh, she is uh, one of those non-prosecution Soros-backed state's attorneys as well. So 100 arrests, 13 police officers injured. There was one homicide that occurred during all of this chaos, during the melee. There were uh, a security guard was shot. Critical condition was taken to Northwestern Hospital early this morning. And uh, just businesses torn apart. And I got to tell you, it's difficult to describe and personalize the destruction when you just talk about it from a statistical vantage point, we're just talking about the number of arrests, the number of injured. This is how much uh, economic damage was done in, in aggregate. But uh, when you go by, as I did this morning, as I was driving out from the city right through all of this, got a good look at it because it was going on when I was driving to my morning gig. 
I was seeing, still seeing people, this is at 4.30 in the morning, still seeing people running out of the Nordstrom's downtown, you know, with other people's merchandise in their possession. And it had a very sort of beyond Thunderdome feel to the downtown. People driving around in little packs, walking around, but also driving around in little packs, ignoring the streetlights, garbage and trash cans and the remnants of windows that were broken and uh, looting that was done strewn all over the streets of Chicago, which is otherwise really still one of the most beautiful big cities in the world. Not after last night, it wasn't. But anyway, I, I digress. I'm just thinking about how to personalize this. And uh, there's a favorite Thai restaurant that I go to in uh, the River North neighborhood, which is not far from my home, called Star of Siam. And I'm driving by as I'm just driving around before I head out to the studio. You know, I see it completely smashed up. And, you know, these are very nice people that have this family restaurant, this Thai restaurant. And uh, you just think about the wanton destruction of somebody else's livelihood and by extension, a piece of their life. That to me is, um, you know, just a way to sort of get to it at the micro level. So you sort of feel it a little bit. And as I'm driving around, you see these uh, young people in cars hanging out the windows, staring you up and down, uh, sizing you up. And uh, it's really a, a dangerous place. It's a place where the civilian political authorities have completely lost the narrative. Oh, by the way, with respect to what the police response is, I know I said 100 arrests, 13 cops injured. It's not exactly clear, though. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. One of the media outlets that tracks uh, Chicago crime, CWB Chicago, they posted this this morning. I have video of a crew breaking into the Ferragamo store. Cops shooed them away twice. One of the looters calmly waited for approaching cops to get close. Then he flipped them off, threw a chunk of concrete at them, and he ran. He got away. So the obvious thing that's wrong with that statement is the looter waiting for the approaching cops, flipping them off, throwing a chunk of concrete. That's obvious. Cops shooing them away twice from the Ferragamo store. That's a problem because in a civil society, in a society governed under the rule of law, you don't shoo people committing an act of violence and theft away. You arrest them. And I said 100 arrests. We'll see how many prosecutions. But it is not clear, even as I talk about it now, many hours after unrest subsided, it's not clear what the rules of engagement for Chicago police are. Are they they there to be like citizen journalists and just record people committing acts of violence and then, I don't know, send that over to the state's attorney's office to make determinations on whether or not to pursue and charge and prosecute these individuals or what it is exactly. And this is the conversation you've seen happen around the country in other cities that have been similarly beset and why Donald Trump is saying, look, Democrat socialists around the country want every city to be like Chicago and Portland. That is not a compliment to Portland or Chicago. So what do you to do? We don't know what the rules of engagement are. You don't have a lot of confidence in a Cook County State's Attorney's Office that is ideologically committed to the non-prosecution culture. The latest in our long lines of tiny, long line of tiny mayors, both in terms of stature as well as character, Lori Lightfoot, the triple threat. I mean, she's just giving you the same rap that every Chicagoan has heard for a long time. So it sounds a little bit more Midwestern sensible, but the fact is she is as much of an antagonist to the police as Jenny Durkin is, as Ted Wheeler is, as Bill de Blasio is. So you can uh, take this tough talk as just what she has to say, but that's not backed up with policy. This is not legitimate First Amendment uh, protected speech. 
These were not poor people engaged in petty theft to feed themselves and their families. This was straight up felony criminal conduct. We have activated a neighborhood protection plan, as the superintendent alluded to, which involves city agencies like Streets and Sand, CDOT, Aviation, working coordination with the Chicago Police Department. These resources um, are being deployed throughout um, our city to protect our neighborhoods. And likewise, these measures will be in place for the foreseeing uh, days until we know that our neighborhoods are safe. Oh, Oh, wonderful. Streets and Sand's dump trucks to block exits in and out to contain. Well, how's that in enhancing safety? Look, this is the same old, same old, and this is coming to a Democrat socialist city near you where there's unrest or symbolic taking going on, violence, in other words. It's just the same old rap from the same old people. Now she's serious. Oh, by the way, just so you get an order of magnitude on violence in Chicago, so far this year, 466 murders, 2,440 people shot. Those are three X the numbers in New York, which has three X Chicago's population effectively to give you some context. And now now so none of that was serious. But now we're getting serious because you had a few hundred people riot and loot and smash and grab downtown. Who buys that after violence has been allowed to go unchecked for so long? And as to, uh, you know, the idea that uh, she would publicly call on Kim Fox, she of Jussie Smollett non-prosecution fame, as I mentioned to uh, make sure those arrested were prosecuted, to put a marker down? Our expectation is that this is going to be treated with a level of seriousness that it should be, period. Don't try to bait us, mischaracterize, pit one against the other. Pit one against the other? No, you're all in it together. All the, again, African-American, Chicago elected officials, mayor, Cook County Board President, appointed officials too, police chief, the chief judge of the Cook County Circuit Court system, all of one party and one mindset. And it's been that way for 100 years in Chicago. And today, Chicago is Murder City, USA, as it has been intermittently over the last three or four decades. And it still is one of the most de facto segregated cities in the country, despite having this leftist leadership for many generations and now black leftist leadership for the current generation it just doesn't change. You take the same position, you take the same approach, you get the same results. And uh, in big cities, unfortunately, because of Trump antipathy or a variety of other issues, which we'll cut, get to after the break, you have a response from the populace that is we want more of the same. Well, maybe that's changing with the combined calamities of 2020 as people look for safer more cost-effective places to spend their lives. This is Dan Prof back with more right after this. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show, uh, continuing our conversation about uh, the uh, violence in Chicago this morning, the rioting, the looting, the uh, smashing and grabbing, the violence directed at police officers. And there were reports by local news that uh, U-Haul trucks with rocks and other projectiles were found 
in the city center so that this was coordinated, at least in part, you know, per the conversation that Attorney General Barr had with uh, Mark Levin talking about Antifa, which, you know, these are sort of iterations of that where you have Antifa embed themselves in any sort of movement of unrest or violence to make sure that the violence does come for the purposes of escalating any confrontation between police and individuals protesting slash rioting. I tell you what, you don't have people show up to protest with empty backpacks they intend to fill. Okay, but appeasement. Remember, it was just a couple of weeks ago that you did have Antifa leading the unrest in Grand Park in the city center to take down the Columbus statue. And that was a confrontation with police as well, where they were using the same tactics they've used in other cities, the uh, pointers to try and blind police officers. And one sergeant may still lose his sight. And so the mayor's response to that was, well, if they're uh, engaged in violence because they want the statue to come down, we'll just beat them to the punch. We'll appease them and take the statue down. That's what she did in the cover of darkness. She took the statue down. Okay, so I guess by that logic of appeasement, since they're looting and raiding and pillaging through the main business district in Chicago, I guess we should just raise the business district, right? Isn't that the logic of appeasement? And meanwhile, by the way, the news that uh, Mayor Lightfoot was making, not consistent, not inconsistent, I should say, with other big city mayors, the news she was making over the weekend prior to this assault on the business district was that she went to some gathering on the beach of a bunch of dudes in Speedos and issued this missive about, you know, this lack of social distancing and mask wearing is going to cause us to go backwards. So she was mom again and she's upset and she's going to turn the car around and she's going to stop it and she's going to make you get out and walk home, whatever that means. You understand when these mayors and governors threaten you like that and are so brazen about it, they're threatening your liberties. They're threatening your economic interests. They're threatening your livelihoods just as they're threatening your child's intellectual and social development with respect to opening K-12 through schools. I can't believe people are going to lie back and continue to be pilloried from all directions, including when it comes to the interests of your children. The story over the weekend in Chicago was about Big Brother, but not tracking those committing acts of violence. No, no. Uh, Using uh, social media trackers to track those who are not properly uh, following city requirements when it comes to COVID-19 prevention, with the governor Pritzker announcing last week enforcement by punishing businesses as if Illinois is not a hostile enough state to do business. The uh, punishing businesses with usurious fines, $2,500, $10,000 if you know somebody isn't wearing a mask in your establishment, for example. And of course, this unleashes all of the uh, aspiring Stasi snitches to try and jackpot businesses as well, because that's the culture. I'm going to get to something uh, Bob Woodson said as well, because uh, he wrote a piece for Washington Examiner uh, entitled The Left Has Abandoned Abandoned Any Pretext That Black Lives Matter. Uh, He writes this, Bob Woodson, today challenges facing black America worse than the conditions of slavery. There's a statement. And remember, Bob Woodson, for those not familiar with him, uh, dates back to the civil rights era. I think he's 82 or 83 years old now. He was there in the 60s, and he's spent the last 50 years trying to lift people out of poverty through the Woodson Center across all racial lines. Anyway, he goes on arguing the challenges black America faces today worse than the conditions of slavery. How can that be? Slavery imposed an external boundary. Today, blacks are being held back by the internal bondage of the belief that their destiny lies outside of their control and that until and unless white America grants what is demanded, life will never improve. 
it's a different and powerful way to say you're, you've stripped young black people of their agency. Well, all black people, but particularly the young, poisoning their minds. And so, uh, it, it, I mean, it's the most perverse thing, as I've argued before on this show. In a way, the left's argument is a white supremacist argument. The black man or woman can do nothing without the white man granting them the ability to do so. That is not a theory to which Bob Woodson ascribes, nor should anyone. And that brings me to Barton Swaim's piece in The Wall Street Journal as well, uh, The Wall Street Journal, which sort of tackles this as well. He writes about uh, these radicals that are driving the unrest, whether it takes the form of Antifa and statue raising or whether it takes the form of the sort of looting and riotous behavior Chicago felt last night. He writes, there isn't much to be said for those who loot and riot in the name of racial equality. But what do we say about the far larger number of young middle class Americans who genuinely believe that America is a fundamentally racist project? You probably know one or more educated 20-somethings who regard cops as cogs in an oppressive machine and who consider nearly everything in American life irredeemably racist. You know, ordinary words and phrases, great works of literature, the flags, sports teams, mascots, all of it. All of that that's being X'd out. Uh, Liberals find this hard to grasp, but when statues of men who achieved great victories for racial equality were torn down by radical agitators... Media reports treated the incidents as unthinking excesses or maybe just retaliation by white supremacists, but they weren't mistake. Nobody who has spent time among politically attuned high school or college students over the last decade or two will find it difficult to believe that in the minds of some young radicals, for example, Ulysses S. Grant, Frederick Douglass are representatives of a racist, xenophobic regime now at last getting the disrespect it deserves. These young Jacobins are product of a sourcement of social and economic forces, parental coddling, lassitude born of affluence, the need for some kind of righteousness in the absence of religion. But they have a point. It's not the one their sympathetic liberal interpreters think. And he basically goes on to argue, yes, that the, the racial orthodoxy imposed by the left has failed. Uh, They recognize its failure. They just are uh, wrong on the remedy. The suggestion by these Jacobins, the Antifa types, is that the left wasn't committed enough to that racial orthodoxy to bring it to effect rather than seeing it as hopelessly contradictory. But uh, but here's the thing about this. So that's for the Antifa types. You know, we've remarked upon these uh, rallies, events that turn into uh, unrest and how it's, you know, white people driving Black Lives Matter, how orchestrated it is. But here in the case of Chicago, where you have largely young black people engaged in looting and that same riotous behavior, uh, it goes back to what Bob Woodson is talking about in part. You're a victim. Nicole Hannah-Jones says that uh, stealing is really a symbolic taking, that uh, vandalizing property can't really be seen as violence because it's not a person. Tell that to somebody whose business has been destroyed, but okay. What you're saying with respect to this cohort within the larger panoply of uh, those in fueling unrest and violence and confrontation with police, this is about people who have bought into victimology. And the Jacobins, the white, you know, middle uh, in middle fam- middle uh, income family to, or, or even upper class, the the lassitude to born of affluence, that category of people, they need black Americans to buy into the victimology. So they have the righteousness attached to their cause. You see how the two sort of work in conjunction with one another. They're coming from slightly different perspectives with slightly different attributes but they're trying to go to the same place and they're they're making the same claim the same claim is what 
I am afforded power that I demand based on my identity. And until you get out of that, uh, life will never improve, to borrow from Bob Woodson. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Moving from the uh, economic damage caused by violence in the streets of Chicago to the economic damage that continues to pile up from the shutting down of significant portion of the U.S. economy and uh, to the end of uh, COVID phase four relief. The president acting unilaterally because he couldn't get a deal on the Hill. The stumbling block, according to Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, who was on with uh, Chris Wallace yesterday, was uh, over the trillion dollar bailout that uh, House and Senate Democrat Socialists wanted for state and local governments, you know, like Chicago. We said, tell us where you are in a compromise for state and local. They said, we're at a trillion dollars. We said, tell us where you are in enhanced unemployment. We told the American people, we'll keep it at 600 while we negotiate. For a week or two, they refused to do that. Those two issues, they've refused any compromise on mostly every single other issue we've reached an agreement. And what happened on Friday was we said to the president, look, now you've got to move forward with an executive action so that you can help American workers and American people. And that's what he did to the tune of enhanced unemployment benefits of $400 a week, so $1,600 a month rather than $2,400 a month. Still uh, curious about the incentives that presents to people that could be making more not working than they were working, as was the case with two thirds of those who were receiving $600 per week enhanced unemployment benefits, according to the University of Chicago study. That seems to be perverse, but the president acting in that direction also with the payroll tax suspension for those with incomes under 100 grand, as well as uh, uh, forbearance on evictions. Dick Durbin was on with that uh, yapping terrier, Chuck Todd, to meet the press. And uh, he's unsure about what to do. He's got a real moral dilemma because, of course, he likes the government's spend, but he wants to pretend that he's real concerned about uh, the constitutionality of executive orders, too. Well, this is a, a moral dilemma. We want unemployed people to receive benefits. Uh, we never wanted them cut off at all. This country club fix suggested by the president is going to be a cut in the unemployment benefits for 30 million Americans. Uh, It's either going to be cut from 600 to 400 or from 600 to zero, where it is right now, if the president's executive orders don't stand. Uh, You know, the bottom line is this. These people uh, are not lazy people. We have five unemployed Americans for every available job. This urban legend, which I say is an urban lie about people sitting at home binging on Netflix and eating chocolate-covered cherries. Listen, I've met with these families. They're desperate to get back to work. Seventy percent of the people who've gone back to work have taken a cut uh, to, to wages below the unemployment benefits, but they want back on the job, and they understand unemployment is a temporary helping hand. So this notion that they're lazy and if they tried a little harder, they'd find jobs just doesn't work. Yeah, it's also a straw man because nobody's uh, arguing about laziness. We're arguing about incentives and whether or not presenting somebody with the incentive not to work is better than presenting them with the incentive to work. For more on this topic and the president's executive orders, we're pleased to be joined again by Andy Puzder, senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy 
former CEO of CKE Restaurants for more than 16 years, following a career as an attorney and former nominee as U.S. Labor Secretary, author of the recently released Getting America Back to Work and the soon-to-be-released It's Time to Let America Work Again. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. So does what the president did mean it's time to let America work again, or is it encouraging America, at least some Americans, to still stay home? First of all, let me say, this is a really interesting situation because you've got the Democrats out there claiming that the president didn't have the power to do this. Even Durbin claims that, although he doesn't want to go to court. Right. Then you've got the Democrats claiming that he didn't do enough. So either you know, so they're simultaneously claiming he couldn't do what he did, but he should have done more, which is a typical approach to issues for Democrats, and it, it's kind of ridiculous. But as far as the incentives to work, if you pay people double what they would make at their job to stay home, it becomes economically unfeasible to go to work. It's not that these people are lazy or they're eating bonbons. But you're paying them double what they would earn at their job to stay home. Look, you don't need to be an economist to know that if you pay people double to stay home, they're going to stay home. Go to your local fast food restaurant. Ask the general manager, were you having a hard time hiring people when the $600 a week federal bonus was in place? And they will all tell you, yes, people were actually coming in and saying, can you wait until August to give me a job? Because right now I'm making more. You know, if I don't come into work, I'm going to lose money if I come work for you. So it, it has been a big problem. Uh, going to 400 will reduce the problem. Uh, it won't eliminate the problem. But I, I do agree with Durbin in one thing. Most Americans do want to get back to work. So if you're not incentivizing them to stay home, you'll find they're, they're, they want to get back to work. And in fact, since the beginning of May, the number of people on traditional state unemployment, which is where you got that $600 bonus, is down about 36%. So we're seeing people go back to work. The economic policies are working, but we shouldn't be discouraging work. Uh, I want to uh, we'll, we'll pick it up there when we return with Andy Puster. Also, just a little bit more data to show how uh, impactful incentives are. Uh, Andy Puster, senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, uh, author of the recently released Getting America Back to Work and the soon to be released It's Time to Let America Work Again. Back with more right after this. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Andy Puzder, senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, former CEO of CKE Restaurants. And uh, author of the recently released Getting America Back to Work and the soon to be released It's Time to Let America Work Again. Nancy Pelosi, on uh, when it was her uh, star turn with Chris Wallace, talked about uh, the president's executive orders being illusions. Uh, they are not real. They're matters of your mind. Uh, but she was even more pointed last week with Jim Cramer on CNBC prior to the president's decision to go it alone. Why can't you go across the aisle and say Representative Lewis, civil rights legend, would have loved it if we could do something for the totally disenfranchised in this country? No matter what, can we give can we give a huge chunk of money to the people who are disenfranchised, to minorities who have want so badly to stay in business and can't and to people who, who are trying to go to college or have student loans who are minorities who are the most affected because they had the least chance in our country? That's got to be something both sides can agree to. Perhaps you mistook them for somebody who gives a damn for what Ooh, you just geez. described. That's yeah, that's the problem. 
Uh, see, the thing is, they don't believe in governance. They don't believe in governance, and that requires some acts of government to do that. Uh, Andy, I, I love the contention that, and I can't, I can't figure out who is more unhinged, uh, Kramer or Pelosi, but I love the idea that Republicans don't believe in governance, doing things, meaning spending money. Uh, they don't believe in that. A com- you know, the two parties over the last uh, hundred years have managed to rack up one hundred and twenty trillion dollars in debt and unfunded liabilities. But nobody believes in government uh, on the Republican side. It's uh, rather laughable. Well, and the president just did four executive orders because the Congress wouldn't act. I mean, he obviously thought the government should act. Uh, in this crisis. And and a crisis like this is the time when a government should act. It's when we don't have a crisis that we'd like to see the government step back. But in a crisis, they should act. And the president, the president did act. Look, there were only two things that, uh, according to Secretary Mnuchin, that um, that were that that the Democrats refused to move on, at least as far as the economic issues. They refused to move on a trillion dollars for these Democrat-run states that were in financial trouble prior to the pandemic, getting a you know a, a boatload of money out of the pandemic. Now, that's part, I think, of Biden's um, uh, seeing this as an opportunity to transform the country. He wants to make sure that we do everything we can to implement democratic policies, uh, ideological policies, as we try and address this disease, and to use that as a lever in negotiations. And the second thing was reinstating the $600 uh, work discouraging. Employment, unemployment insurance benefits. So, you know, and that's of course leaving aside the things they wouldn't move on, such as you know putting in rules on uh, that would change national elections and made it uh, much easier for Democrats to win those elections. Reinstating the tax deduction uh, for state and state and local taxes that would have benefited wealthy taxpayers in states like New York and California. Those are the kinds of things they were trying to get in this bill. And to claim that uh, the Republicans weren't willing to do to, to address the issues that affected the financial pain being suffered by American families, they, by President Trump doing these executive orders, he put the lie to that completely. And I don't think Democrats, Democrats aren't going to recover from it. They're already trying to get back in to get the negotiations going again because uh, President Trump trumped them. Uh, he really pulled uh, a typical. T- I, I'm glad I. When I was in business, I'm glad I was never on the other side of Trump in a negotiation. He really pulled one over on Pelosi here, and it was good to see. Yeah, he has sort of uh, done a little bit of a jujitsu, and that may be good, um, uh, good short kind of short-term politics. But then there's the medium-term recovery, like where the economy stands as we go into the November third election, or even you know significantly prior to that, with how many people could be early voting, voting by mail, and the like. And we still see, though, even with the pretty good jobs report, surprisingly good, actually, jobs report last week, the uh, sign of uh, or the, uh, the the share of long term unemployed uh, rose one point three percentage points, meaning 27 weeks or more. Uh, and we also have real dis- uh, disparity in by region. The Wall Street Journal did a good regional breakdown on this. The uh, percentage of the state's workforce claiming unemployment benefits for the week. That ended July 18th in the West, for example, you got Idaho at less than four percent, California at 18 percent, Wisconsin in the Midwest at seven and a half percent, Michigan at almost 14 percent. And, you know, can you have a economic revitalization, a recovery, regardless of the, the shape? Is it a U shape? Is it a V when you have so many big states with so many people out of work? 
Well, it's, it's obviously much tougher, and I, I think that we're seeing uh, policies implemented in blue states, in Democrat-led states, uh, that can only be interpreted as attempts to keep the economy from growing. I mean, look at New York. New York has had an incredibly low number of new uh, coronavirus cases. The, the deaths are down very, very low in the entire state. They're, you know, they're under 10 since the end of June per day. I mean, we're re- you know, this virus is never going to go away. It's like a cold. Even when we get a vaccine, there are still people that are going to be getting this disease. So you can't wait till everything's at zero. Uh, but you look at a state like New York and you say, look, at the numbers are so low. What are you waiting for? It's not going to get to zero. I mean, what are you waiting for to open up your economy? And the only rational answer is we're waiting for the election. I think after November 3rd, you'll see a lot of these states open up, no matter who wins, because they need to get their economies back on track. But in the interim, uh, they're going to do everything they can to keep things shut down because they believe that will hurt Donald Trump. Now, despite that, the you know, we've had the three highest months of job, uh, new job creation in the history of the government tracking the data, which I think goes back to 1939. I mean, it's it's an incredible performance, particularly given the headwinds of the virus still being out there. Uh, we don't have a virus. We don't have totally effective therapeutics yet, and states trying to keep their economy shut down. Despite all of that, uh, restaurants uh, restaurants and hotels added the highest number of jobs of any sector. They added over half a million jobs. So we are seeing that the, the animal spirits of the free market, the animal spirits of, uh, of, of capitalism, and of people trying to move their life forward and, and get out from under this burden, we're, we're seeing that out there, and we, we will see it increasingly um, particularly as states realize they've, they've got they've got to open up. Uh, but I think most of that may not happen until the election. He is Andy Puster, senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, former CEO of CKE Restaurants, former nominee for U.S. Labor Secretary, author of the recently released Getting America Back to Work and the soon-to-be-released It's Time to Let America Work Again. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insight. Pleasure. Dan, anytime. Take care. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. We were talking earlier in the hour before we chatted with Andy Puster about the Chicago violence, some commentary from Bob Woodson and others about the and Barton Swam over the Wall Street Journal about the exact nature of what we're dealing with. And so who's the fix? The fix isn't going to come from mayors. There's just no political will. This is the law and order is not their constituency. Um, But it may come from uh, some individuals from the black community. Like, uh, for example, one Shamika Michelle, she offered this uh, (laughs) riff to some, you know, goofball Antifa protester or whatever. Antifa screwball, not protester, really. This was at a walkaway rally in Beverly Hills, of all places. Walkaway meaning Democrats walking away from the Democrat Party. And uh, he apparently was there protesting some white dude uh, with a ski hat on in Beverly Hills. Uh, okay, sure. Shimika Michelle uh, gave him chapter and verse from a black woman's perspective. Right to tell me my life matters. I don't need your privilege to tell me or to justify who I am in America. This is my country. This is my land. I am here to 
as bold as I want to. And I don't have to have you look at the and tell me my life matters. That right there insinuates that you think your voice is bigger and better than mine. Yes, it does. Come on. You can, you can, you can disagree. You can disagree, but you are supporting an organization that does not like black men. And as a black woman, I can tell you how important black men are to the black family. Without them, we are nothing. So when you support an organization that doesn't push them up the way we need them to be, you ain't. Sh and you can take that from Shamika Michelle and post it wherever you like. Shamika Michelle has spoken uh, talking about Black Lives Matter not being an organization that supports black men. Well, well, what do you mean? Right. Because she actually read what Black Lives Matter stands for, recognized them to be a Marxist organization, not fundamentally a racial justice organization. And when they talk about the nuclear family needing to be torn asunder, she recognizes, well, that's one of the things that's happened to the black community that's been particularly destructive. You're not standing up for black men. You're not standing up for uh, black families then you're not standing up for the black community. One plus one equals two. And so to, to me, Shamika Michelle and uh, the example she provided there <laughs> lecturing this daffy white kid with a ski hat and a card hashtag BLM on a cardboard, putting it in her face. Little little white boy telling Shamika Michelle all about how black lives matter. Right. The irony lost on them. But of course, that's not the point. But uh, more than discussions about sending in the National Guard or talking about the 101st Airborne on the streets of Chicago any more than on Portland or Seattle to try to incentivize local and state officials to maintain the rule of law and peace on the streets of the communities they're elected to represent, uh, elevating the Shamika Michelles, more and more of those voices providing a perspective that is very difficult to argue with. More Shamika Michelles. Absolutely. This is Dan Pass. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Let's catch up on COVID-19. There's a lot to catch up on. As the debates rage, continue to rage over the education of children and, and young adults, Joelle Simpson at uh, Children's National Hospital in D.C., are children susceptible to catching the virus? Absolutely. Are they able to transmit the virus? Absolutely. Uh -huh. One of the largest studies in the world on coronavirus in schools carried out in 100 institutions in Britain. The conclusion, there is very little evidence that the virus is transmitted there. Professor Russell Viner, president of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health and member of the government advisory group, uh, SAGE, said, new study has been done in UK, uh, that UK schools confirms there's very little evidence the virus is transmitted in, in schools. This is some of the largest data you will find on schools anywhere. Britain has done very well in terms of thinking of collecting data in schools. So who's right? Stockholm and Sweden, the worst example. Human experimentation. That's one view, uh, mostly advanced by the New York Times and the press corps and uh, the uh, lockdown artists. Sebastian uh, Rushworth, 
is a Swedish doctor, and he admits that uh, this piece that he posted is just his experience, his uh, anecdotal experience, but it is interesting. It does include some macro data. It's now four months since the start of the pandemic, and I haven't seen a single COVID patient in over a month. When I do test someone because they have a cough or fever, the test severely comes back negative. At the peak three months back, 100 people were dying a day of COVID in Sweden, a country with a population of 10 million. We're now down to around five people dying per day in the whole country, and that number continues to drop. And uh, again, he's in a Swedish hospital. He was treating COVID patients. So he has some, again, anecdotal perspective on case volume. So um, what is uh, happening exactly? He uh, said, if herd immunity hasn't developed, where are all the sick people? Why is the rate of infection dropped so precipitously? Considering that most people in Sweden are leading their lives normally now, not social distancing, not wearing masks, there should still be high rates of infection. So what's happened? To help us uh, navigate some of these questions, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Roger Klein. He's an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. First, uh, on the matter of uh, transmission and in schools, you know, set against the backdrop of of so many school districts at the K through 12 level opting for e-learning only or some two days on, three days off sort of hybrid learning. Where do you fall on this and and what should uh, parents understand about um, the school's decision making? So I've said all along I thought children could transmit it and that it was unrealistic to think that they can't. And I, it seems as if we're being proved right. The problem with this disease and what's going on is that we're not doing a great job in capturing infections. We're only capturing cases. And that's still the, the situation and, and, and even more so other places around the world. I don't think we're going to have a great handle on, you know, on exact numbers until sometime past after after this is over and people have a chance to analyze uh, all the data. Well, okay, but so children can transmit it. Uh, a UK study uh, oh, sure. seems to suggest it's uh, it's very limited, if at all. It's different kids versus adults. And so, again, in that school setting with all of these die-ins on college campuses and teachers' unions screeching, I want to teach, but I also want to live, is that is that a reasonable position to take? No, I mean, I think kids should go back to school. I said this, I, I was on a, a new show uh, several weeks ago, and I said, I said that they should go back to school and that it's unrealistic to think kids won't, can't transmit it. What happens is, is most people who get infected, as I have said all along, don't, they don't even know they're sick. They're, they don't know they're infected. And what, what really the problem is that we, most people who get infected simply have are asymptomatic and have mild infections. It's even more so among children. The concern is not that the kids are going to get it, but that they're going to bring it home to their parents. And of course, with young kids, most young kids have young parents and they also don't get sick. And and that's really what we're seeing here. And I, I kids need to go to school. They ought to go to school. This epidemic isn't going to go away until enough people get infected or ha- or we have a vaccine so that we develop enough immunity for it to kind of die down. That's really what has to happen. That's the natural course of an epidemic. Uh, the uh, There's a piece uh, from The Atlantic making its uh, rounds because it's uh, apocalyptic. So that's what people want to feed on to feed their fear. It's really sort of perverse. The winter will be worse. Because uh, the uh, admonition is to do things outside, even though you're then dispersed when you're doing things outside by these same artists, lockdown artists. But do things outside. Well, when the winter comes and you're less able to do things outside, then everybody is going to die. The COVID situation, uh, if, 
you know, more people are, may, you know, maybe more likely to get infected. We need to really protect vulnerable people. But uh, we're going to have less flu because we're taking all these measures. So there's going to be a counterbalance, especially in schools, for example. I, you know, people are saying, oh, when you go back to school, there's going to we know what happens with kids and they all get the flu. Well, maybe now because we're taking all these precautions, a lot of them won't get the flu. So we may end up having less illness in school. Again, it's not the CDC's fault, but this analysis, effectively, this editorial comment masquerading as a news story, Yahoo News, the number one hotspot in America, Columbia County, Florida, Columbia County, Florida, with a population of 72,000, which uh, recently renamed its um, most populous city, Lake City, from Alligator, uh, Florida, uh, they, they showed a big increase in cases. Uh, and it, it turns out when you actually look at it, there was an outbreak at the correctional institution that's housed in that county, uh, 1,400 inmates. Uh, the infection in that prison accounts for 54% of the county's COVID-19 cases. But that's not the part reported. It's just the, you know, the hot spots are in Florida and Texas. And you go down and you look at other similarly uh, relatively sparsely populated, smaller counties in both Florida and Texas. And you find that um, what you saw is a little bit of an increase off a base of very few cases and very few deaths. And now these are hot spots that to, to build off of their uh, contention that uh, New York City uh, is Cheyenne, Wyoming, is Bismarck, uh, South Dakota, is uh, is Orlando, Florida, is Austin, Texas. Yeah, so, so I hope people don't listen to this. So the problem with cases are is cases, cases at this point are a meaningless number, and they're mostly a function of testing. So I think what we need to do is understand that there are probably there are easily in the United States ten times the number of infections as there are cases. So and and that shouldn't alarm people; it should actually comfort them because most people don't get sick. And so, or, or seriously ill, let's put it that way. And, and, I, and CDC did a study, a serology study in a bunch of cities, and that this is what their conclusion was, was that there were, that there were 10, over 10 times as many infections. That's CDC. And that, that's a, they, 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 they did that on, on commercial uh, samples of people who were presenting for medical care. So it's possible that that, that number is a, a significant understatement. If you look around the world and you look at death and you look at death rates and you look at case rates and you look at testing, you're, you're going to see that, that much, of, much of this has to do with the, the numbers of asymptomatic or uh, um, mildly symptomatic cases that, were, that, that are identified. And that's going to be the biggest determinant of a, of a lot of these types of, uh, types of calculations. But as it turns out, most of these states like, you know, Texas, for example, is on a population basis is doing quite well uh, for, for reported deaths versus states like New Jersey and New York, which I mean, I, I've got the numbers here. I think New Jersey has six times the number of, of deaths and per population as Texas does and three times the numbers of reported deaths as Arizona. So, well, so I think, you know, they've got a long way to go. Well, this yeah, seems, for population, for million. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, and by the way, I think I said Bismarck, uh, South Dakota. Bismarck, North Dakota, Pierre, South Dakota, for those keeping track of state capitals at home. Sorry <laughs> about that. Even NPR, though, reporting, mounting evidence suggests coronavirus is more common and less deadly than it first appeared. Oh, you don't say. It's, but it's still being reported and talked about like uh, he got it. Uh, he got the infection. It's a death sentence. That's the way it's being reported. And it just is difficult to walk people back to terra firma when they think that an infection is the is a death sentence. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so I, I mean, I've been on a number of shows with well-known people who have had it and have had no symptoms. And, you know, I, you, you got to start to think when Louis Gomer gets on television and he's got, he's infected and he's got no symptoms and he didn't know it. And, and, and I was on with the mayor of Tempe a few weeks ago and he, he said he'd had it and he didn't have any symptoms. You got to start to realize that these, these people who are well-known and getting it and don't have symptoms are, are the norm, not the exception. And what we're seeing out of hospitals are those people who ended up in the hospital. And they're the sickest people, and that and and that doesn't represent the disease. It represents the tip of the iceberg, but the the worst tip. He is Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, and advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. You should probably take his uh, advice to heart, uh, parents out there th- thinking about schooling for your kids. Dr. Klein, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Back to the show, Space, the Final Frontier, the cultural Marxist plan to conquer it. This from NASA. If it wasn't bad enough when uh, NASA was uh, repurposed to uh, extol the contributions of the uh, Muslim world to uh, space exploration during the Obama administration, now we have this during a Republican administration. NASA will no longer refer to uh, certain planetary nebula and other celestial bodies by uh, nicknames that are insensitive. For example, NGC 2392, you're familiar with it. The uh, glowing remains of a sun-like star that's blowing off its outer layers at the end of his life. It's referred to as the Eskimo Nebula. Eskimo is widely viewed as a colonial term with a racist history imposed on the indigenous people of the Arctic region, so that's got to go. Another one. The Siamese Twins Galaxy refers to NGC, you're scoring at home, 4567, NGC 4568, a pair of spiral galaxies found in the Virgo galaxy cluster. Uh, Virgo, maybe uh, should hook up with the Sagittarius galaxy. Moving forward, NASA will use only the official International Astronomical Union designations in cases where nicknames are inappropriate. And uh, you have the Diversity and Equal Opportunity Off Associate Administrator. What? You need more than one at NASA talking about how they're going to be historically and culturally sensitive and so on and so forth. It seems to me that, yes, the the law and order issue that we've been speaking about on the program per the violence and rioting and looting and smashing and grabbing in Chicago uh, in the wee hours this morning, that's that's a huge issue. may become the preeminent issue if it persists in big cities the way it has in Portland and Seattle and Chicago through November 3rd. This is sort of a, a an issue that continues to bubble up below the surface, below the surface of COVID, below the surface of law and order. This issue of um, having to be constantly on guard, lest your livelihood, education, social standing be stripped away because you said one wrong thing made one wrong move. Uh, you know, you will be assimilated by the Borg. I think there's perhaps some rage against this, too, that isn't perhaps that is not uh, being fully felt yet. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Chadwick Moore, columnist for Spectator USA, former editor at large of Out Magazine and The Advocate. 
Chadwick, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. You have a, a piece at Spectator U.S., which I think dovetails into this nicely, actually, and it's just uh, getting a handle on sort of the common sense realism that you find in find among taxi cab drivers the world over, uh, maybe with the exception of Miami, but uh, certainly in New York City. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's something I've been noticing for several years with if you happen to get into a political discussion with a cab driver, which increasingly is more and more often they tend to be incredibly conservative or, if liberal, very anti-left. I had uh, wondered if I was the only one who noticed this and asked other people who totally agreed. And then I have a friend who's an Uber driver and brought it up to him, and he completely agreed, too. And uh, his theory was that, first of all, drivers tend to listen to talk radio all day long, which tends to be more right-leaning. And uh, just the fact that, that uh, cab drivers tend to be self-employed. And that comes with these uh, dangerously right-wing attributes of uh, self-reliance and uh, hard work. And also the, the, the setting of, of being in the back of a taxi cab tends to be quite respectful. And you're not really going to have many people who feel free to fly off the handle and talk about uh, um, radical politics if, uh, especially if the driver happens to disagree. Although one suspects that uh, perhaps uh, many of these drivers have encountered such a person that is uh, fully woke and uh, anxious to share and, uh, you know, that especially in urban centers you know, where taxi cabs populate, that that may have turned some of those cab drivers off of, uh, you know, the Marxist left. I was thinking that maybe because they have such quite intimate interactions with strangers all day long, that they maybe have noticed a trend in just the likability and rationality of uh, the left versus the right. Maybe they've had much more pleasant encounters with more conservative thinking people. Maybe they've found in their, their sampling of the general public for them to be a bit more nuanced and rational, maybe just a bit more polite and nice than lefties who might just sound like cyborgs and repeating the same lines and uh, are full of all sorts of hypocrisies and uh, non do you think that, um, uh, as I said at the outset, that that, that is a, a thing, that the attacks on language, on history, on uh, basically enlightenment values, reason, do you think that that, that is creating a, a, a bit of a backlash, even if it hasn't uh, taken a, a vocal form as of yet? I think it must have. And you sort of mentioned with cancel culture that how can the average people use the term silent majority a lot? I don't know if that's the best term, but how can people not be paying attention to what's going on and and seeing this sort of insanity, seeing the attack on history, seeing I just saw some crazy college professor over the weekend saying that math is racist again. Right. And but at the same time, woe betide the person who speaks up and calls out the hypocrisy or the insanity and and uh, and and just is really not happy with this this reinvention of history, this chaos, this cultural chaos is coming. They want to see things more calm and normal, but of course they can't speak up because they're afraid of having their livelihoods ruined. Do you, do you get the sense that there's any uh, part, a coalition partner uh, in uh, the, the cultural Marxism that may be rethinking their membership? And I say this because of this uh, uh, tweet that uh, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, issued this weekend where she uh, posted a picture of a bunch of men on a beach in Chicago uh, in bathing suits. They weren't social distancing. They were interacting with one another. It was uneventful except to her. Uh, but it was, hey, listen, basically, hey, you guys, you're not helping. And it, this is why we had to close the beaches. And if you don't start abiding all of the covid restrictions, then we're going to have to do it again for, for somebody in that picture, for somebody, you know, a healthy person outside enjoying other other people's company. 
on a nice day on the weekend by the beach and getting chastised by the mayor of their city. Doesn't that at some point say, you know what, maybe I'm a man or a woman of the left, but I, but I just can't be part of this. I, uh, otherwise, ultimately, they're going to come for me. Is that recognition happening at all? Oh, absolutely. I think I think it is. And once again, people aren't really going to feel comfortable to even talk about it. But I think you're seeing it everywhere. You're seeing it with conversations with strangers who just will – you know, just just sort of casually acknowledge the insanity of the lockdown. Everyone's over it. No one wants to speak up about it. Um, that that image that 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 Mayor Lightfoot shared over the weekend really didn't earn her any friends or favor, especially in, in members of the left, I think. And uh, and all you have to see is just what happened then last night with the riots and, and looting uh, in Chicago. Now it was also very interesting that. Uh, people judged up a tweet from July, I think July 18th from Mayor Lightfoot, the height of the George Floyd madness, yes. in which she said she unequivocally supports people gathering and, and peacefully protesting and exercising their First Amendment rights. Of course, she's talking about BLM protesters. Meanwhile, what more peaceful, better way to exercise your First Amendment rights than to gather in a group on a Sunday afternoon on the beach and just say, you know what, we're over this lockdown. We're over your mask orders. We're over this hysteria. This is the ultimate form of of peaceful protest and civil disobedience. Everyone in that photo obviously knew that they weren't supposed to be doing that, and they did it anyway. That's a a beautiful way to exercise your First Amendment right and to uh, call out the uh, the mayor's hypocrisy and and say that you're fed up with it. Uh, 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 Yeah, Yeah, and it also uh, perhaps indicates that they have a better handle on the science regarding transmission than does the mayor, which is no surprise in big cities these days. Chadwick Moore, columnist for Spectator USA, former editor-at-large of Out Magazine and The Advocate. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks a lot. And uh, coming up after the break, we're going to talk to Mark Hemingway, senior writer at RealClearInvestigations.com, about uh, ballot security as there is litigation going in multiple directions, various directions, I should say, all over the country regarding uh, the push for a vote-by-mail national election on November 3rd. We'll have uh, Mark Hemingway right after the break. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. We've uh, discussed this topic uh, quite a bit with uh, Tom Fitton, among others, over the last uh, several weeks as the, uh, the uh, intensity of the debate over voting by mail has increased uh, against the backdrop of vote by mail elections in Patterson, New Jersey and New York State, to name but two, that it didn't exactly go off without a hitch. Wall Street Journal has a good editorial about this as well, the New York primary. An autopsy of New York's mail vote mess. Uh, one of the uh, interesting stats, because there's you know, a multitude of issues under this umbrella of uh, ballot integrity. Uh, good conversation we had uh, the other week with Hans van Spakowski from the Heritage Foundation as well. But how much of uh, American mail arrives late? The share of election and political mail that was delivered on time during the 2018 elections. They uh, present in this uh, graph per a inspector general's audit of the U.S. Postal Service, seven lowest performing processing and distribution centers, the seven lowest performing processing and distribution centers. What percentage of election and political mail, you know, like absentee ballot applications and then absentee ballots was delivered on time? Anaheim, California, 
84%. Cleveland, Ohio, 79%. Eau Claire, Wisconsin, 87%. Fox Valley, Illinois, 89%. Royal Palm, Florida, 76%. A suburban Maryland, 84%. There were uh, the average of the lowest uh, seven performing was 84%. Well, boy, um, you know, uh, 16% of uh, election political mail that was not delivered in a timely fashion, given the various deadlines for applications and ballot submissions that that are different by state, uh, that could lead to a lot of people being disenfranchised, couldn't it? That's just one aspect of this, but it's an important one. How much do you trust the post office? Um, And interestingly, as I've argued from the beginning here, the Democrats may find out they're hoist by their own petard in their their push for this national vote-by-mail election. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by Mark Hemingway, senior writer at Real Clear Investigations, realclearinvestigations.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, you recently wrote about uh, lawsuits uh, challenging Ohio's mail voting security policy and, and access. I mean, this is happening everywhere and coming from uh, multiple directions, isn't it? Yeah. I and mean, there's been a, definitely been a big coordinated effort sort of across the country for, you know, on behalf of Democratic organizations to challenge sort of existing, you know, voter integrity measures, basically, to make it as easy as possible to get a mail-in ballot right now, in spite of a lot of the problems that are being presented, as you've, you know, highlighted so far with, you know, mail-in ballots. <laughs> and, uh, uh, again, they're, they're not chastened at all by the experience in Patterson or, or New York, where you've got, you know, basically Democrats uh, fighting with Democrats. Uh, Patterson, New Jersey, the NAACP calling for a redo, for goodness sakes. Yeah, I was kind of the guy that uh, sort of broke that story nationally um, uh, and did all the reporting on it. And it's been sort of instructive. You know, I I reported that story, and, you know, obviously it's huge news in light of some of the things that we've seen. And and actually, since I reported that story, you know, the congressional elections in New York have started to highlight some more problems with – mail-in elections. Um, And Donald Trump, of course, has been tweeting a lot about it, but it's really kind of astonishing how we're in a situation now where the media doesn't want to delve into this like really pressing story because they sort of like stake their reputation on expanding ballot access as rapidly as possible being, you know, uh, a good thing. And there's, you know, nothing now that seems that they can be persuaded otherwise. Uh, you know, you could, you know, argue for certainly doing more to expand, you know, ballot access and more mail-in ballots or whatever. But if you're going to do that, you've got to have the legal, inf- you've got to have the legal and like physical infrastructure in place to make those kinds of you know, make mail elections go off without a hitch and to, you know, to try and, you know, go from a mostly, you know, in-person mail a voting system in this country to mail in a mostly mail-in election in November in the span of like six months is just been crazy. And we're, we're constantly seeing problems with that right now. Um, and, you know, the lawsuits are, are a big part of that. Um, you know, in, in Ohio, the latest thing is that Democrats are suing the secretary of state because, there's no way to apply for a mail-in ballot online. And currently in the state, you have to fill out a form and mail it in. Um, and they want to be may force the state to do that online. Except the problem is, you know, early voting starts in two months in Ohio. State doesn't have the infrastructure to put in a secure portal um, online uh, to um, to request mail-in ballots. Never mind. There's a question of whether they have the legal, the state of state is a legal authority. Doesn't really have the legal authority to do that. So the Democrats are now suing them to make it so that you can take a picture of your filled-in form and mail it into the 88K 
county boards of elections in the state. And the Secretary of State is balking because, you know, for a Democratic Party that spent the last four years screaming about election hacking, you know, having your local board of election, you know, be mandated to open up a bunch of strange email attachments <laughs> is just a recipe for disaster. Uh, when we come back, uh, I, I want to uh, pick up our discussion here and then and, and talk about uh, some of the things that perhaps will cut against Democrats and whether or not there's a, a real recognition of that. Uh, Mark Hemingway, senior writer, RealClearInvestigations.com. We'll have more with Mark right after this. You know that I somebody. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Mark Hemingway, senior writer at RealClearInvestigations.com. We're talking about uh, the uh, litigation surrounding the effort at the state by state, at the state level, state by state, to uh, expand voting by mail to essentially affect something akin to a national vote by mail election in November. And, uh, you know, the, one of the things that Republicans have expressed concern about repeatedly, uh, Mark, has been sort of the ballot harvesting programs like we saw in Orange County, California in the midterms in 2018 that uh, many Republicans suggest was the difference for Democrats in picking up the seats they did in the House. And it's like, well, look, they've got an infrastructure there. They've got organization. They've got the foot soldiers to really be effective, perhaps even to the point of fraudulent. I won't go that far, but that's the theory is that, you know, it's possible because they have uh, these armies. But it's not that way everywhere. Uh, The Democrat Party isn't that strong like in California or Illinois or New York, everywhere, and in swing states in particular. So Republicans can run ballot integrity programs, even if Democrats are trying to run ballot harvesting programs and vice versa. It's a little bit more complicated state as, as you go from state to state. And Democrats have their own complications with their constituencies, as some organizations have pointed out, like this whole vote by mail thing. Uh, but that, that makes it a little bit more complicated for some constituents that constituent groups they need to really turn out like young people who, as one person pointed out, something an older person like me wouldn't even think about. They don't even know where to go to get stamps because they've never used stamps. Um, so it, it, do, you, do you get the sense that this could cut a few different directions, this uh, vote by mail zeitgeist, uh, not just be so uniformly beneficial to Democrats? I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to show that, for instance, you know, voting by mail is something that, you know, favors, you know, older voters, which tend to vote GOP. And there are some other things there that, you know, certainly cut across the party conception of, you know, rapidly expanding the vote necessarily being an unalloyed good for Democrats. Further, I have no doubt that, you know, if we did move to some sort of, you know, much more mail-in system, that Republicans would adapt and evolve and, and, you know, figure it out, even if they were, you know, caught flat-footed in a few circumstances like But there are some, you know, basic facts here, which is to say that, I mean, absolutely every serious person who looks at voting systems will tell you that to the extent that we have voter fraud in this country, and, you know, it's, it's not massive, but, it, you know, it's significant enough to pay attention to, to the extent we have voter fraud in this country, voter fraud is heavily, heavily focused on mail-in balloting versus in-person voting for a million different obvious reasons. If we are going to, for instance, move to a mail-in voting system, we have to have much more sort of secure systems in place. Like, for instance, I'm originally from Oregon. Oregon's been doing vote-by-mail for decades. I, you know, Oregon has its own problems with vote-by-mail. But because the state has been doing it for a long time, they at least have like an elaborate barcode system for security and things like that that make it so that when you're mailing in a ballot, you know, there's, there, there are much higher levels of security for um, determining whether or not um, a ballot uh, is, in fact, coming from the person that's 
Um, but, you know, that brings us back to Ohio. There's actually a second voter lawsuit in Ohio right now because one of the things they're doing right now across the country is Democrats are, again, to, you know, facilitate perhaps some of the ballot harvesting and other things that they're trying to, you know, um, push. They are trying very hard to sue to eliminate a lot of voter security measures with mail-in ballots. For instance, one of the few security measures that a lot of mail-in ballots have anywhere is um, they do what they call signature matches, right. which is to say you sign your ballot, and then when they, your ballot is collected at the local board of election or whatever, they go to your voter registration card or whatever's on file and look at the signature on that form and compare it to the one on the ballot. Um, and so in Ohio right now, the League of Women Voters is suing to get rid of that requirement, um, which is the only real there, – there are only two basic requirements for voter, for voter identification in Ohio. One is you, know, you have to list some you know, personal information, uh, but it could be something as simple as providing a utility bill that proves that you live at that same address. This voter signature is the only thing that proves that it directly came from you, and they are suing in Ohio to get rid of that. Um, now, I understand you know, comparing signatures is obviously a very imperfect thing that involves a lot of human error and human subjective judgment, and I can see where that could be a problem. But, you know, again, <laughs> early voting in Ohio is two months away. You know, you're talking about striking down one of the few security measures we have in place. Um, you know, and again, while signature matching is, is, is certainly imperfect, it's, you know, it does have a pretty valid role in election security. For instance, you know, in Patterson, New Jersey, when they uncovered that election fraud scheme that resulted in the Democratic AG indicting four people, including a member of the city council in that city, um, signature matching was one of the big ways that they identified that fraud. Well, and, and you know, here again, as uh, you talk about other aspects of this, including the... Uh the accuracy of the state lists, state voter rolls. Uh, you had this story out of Clark County last week where uh, Clark County, Nevada, 223,000 of like 1.3 total mail ballots that were mailed came back as undeliverable. So, I mean, just in terms of thinking about, um, you know, the, the, what the state understands uh, in terms of where people live and who's at which address and how that could be manipulated when you have that much attrition that it was at least theretofore unaccounted for. And, and I don't know if it's been accounted for since those returns to clean their roles or not. I mean, I, I guess that's a local issue. Yeah, no, this is, this is, again, a huge problem that, you know, is going to be a bigger issue when it comes to mail-in balloting that, you know, people aren't addressing. Like, already we have this huge problem in this country where you have, like, you know, you know several, several states that have, you know, voter registration rates that exceed 100%, meaning that they haven't been cleaning their voter rolls. You know, there are lots of people that are listed at addresses in states that aren't there anymore. And if we're all of a sudden you have states, and Ohio's one of them, actually, that have decided to just mail out ballots to, you know, or at least not ballots themselves, but at least mail out applications to um, uh, every registered voter in yeah. the state or mail. In some cases, I believe they are just automatically mailing out ballots to everyone in, in, in the state. You're going to be sending out a lot of ballots to people that no longer live at certain addresses. And, yes, you know, you'll find out that a lot of them were, were undeliverable, but you're also going to get a lot of cases where ballots just, you know, go through the mail slot or the, into the mailbox of people who, you know, um, who, who don't live there anymore, and people are going to be sitting around with a surfeit of ballots. And the question is, is are people going to start, you know, filling those in? I mean, <laughs> these are, you know, serious concerns. We're not investing anything in the kind of, you know, election infrastructure we need to do mail-in balloting, and we're looking at shoving this down people's throats in a couple of months. And, you know, already, as we saw in the New York congressional elections, which were held in June, we still don't have winners yet because of the mail-in balloting mess that's been created. Um, you know, can you imagine what it's going to do to an already sort of tense 
partisan, very divided political situation in America. If, you know, we're rolling into December or January, we still have no idea who the next president of the United States is, and there's a whole bunch of lawsuits being filed across the country, and people are, you know, are screaming at each other. I mean, this is going to be an absolute utter nightmare. Yeah, precisely. No, that's precisely the concern. Uh, well laid out. Mark Hemingway, senior writer at RealClearInvestigations.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having The more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. I don't have kids, so I was unaware of this doll uh, or uh, this uh, movie or whatever that it's from. Toymaker Hasbro has a, a new Trolls doll. Uh, named Poppy, or maybe it's not new, but it's a doll named Poppy. And um, uh, one uh, circumspect mom found something odd about this doll, Poppy, and she put together a video uh, indicating what the problem was with the doll that prompted a petition that prompted now Hasbro to pull the doll. But it's just a uh, sort of case study in the need for parents to be constantly vigilant in this secular humanist world. This Trolls World Tour doll named Poppy. Listen to Jessica McManus explain the problem. It was my daughter's birthday a couple days ago and she turned two and she was given this gift. It's like a little Poppy doll. It's adorable. And here's the box. So she had a Poppy birthday and so they they gave her this. It's just from the new movie, The Trolls World Tour. On the box, it says giggle and sing poppy. On the back, it says that if you push her tummy right here, sorry, it's glaring. If you push her tummy right here, she makes 10 phrases and sounds. And that's all it talks about when it comes with a little comb. So, I mean, she does all that. You touch her tummy and she makes little singing sounds and she's super cute. Mm -hmm. Well, I was showing her to my husband and I heard some other sounds that I had never heard before. And if you look down here, I figured a video was the best way. So I just touched her tummy and she's going to sing for a minute. But down here is a button right here on her privates. And if you push those, she makes these sounds. Like a gasping sound. And I know some of you may not like think this is a big deal, but especially since I've had kids, like this is wrong. For one, this button, it says nothing about this button on the box. Nothing. It's just, it's just there. And it makes uh, a gasping sound when you touch her privates. And to me, it's just like sexual sounds. And it's so disturbing. It's so disturbing. And as she points out, um, how could the toy maker not know? There's a button. And those sounds for a doll that little girls are going to play with. I mean, you know, you can make all the juvenile jokes about it you want, but seriously, that that is that is not a laughing matter. That's sick. The somebody or somebody's at Hasbro. That's not an accident. How, how do you explain that? Uh, so good for, as I said, vigilant parent Jessica McManus for identifying this and starting this petition that led ha- Hasbro to immediately back down. Hmm. Perhaps a guilty conscience over there at Hasbro. 
should be more to this story, though. More, you know, it's one thing to pull the the uh, doll from the shelves. It's another thing to explain just how that happened, just what that uh, feature, uh, just why that feature was there. So I hope uh, McManus uh, continues on her quest to hold Hasbro accountable, and I hope uh, other parents, now that you know about this, do the same. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. Argument on the Sunday talkies about uh, which one of America's enemies poses the most threat to undermining our November 3rd election. Is it uh, the Chinese? Is it the Iranians? Is it the Russians? Is it all of the above? You can't have an intelligence report without, of course, it being politicized. And uh, the left, uh, starting with uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, using the uh, acknowledgement that the Russians are attempting to meddle in the 2020 election, as they have in, I don't know, every election since the rise of the Soviet Union, I suppose. But uh, that, of course, is an opportunity to continue to (laughs) extend the Russian collusion mythology that has been roundly discredited, but not in their circles, not not when Democrat socialists in office are talking to Democrat socialists on news desks uh, for more on uh, this topic and a few other topics. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend Jim Carifano, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carifano, that is vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books, including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Weigh in on that intelligence estimate and what, if anything, should be surprising to us about the notion that the Iranians, the Chinese communists and the Putinistas are attempting to uh, play games in our election. The reporting was uniformly bad. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest news story. First of all, what what really none of the media really failed to do is kind of parse the nature of the threat. So there's a difference between physical meddling in the election, trying to move ballots or or mess with the election process uh, and propaganda, disinformation or whatever. On the on the physical meddling side, we we have made huge progress. I mean, it, it turned out it actually wasn't that big a deal in 2016. Mm-hmm. But in 2020, we put a lot more emphasis on securing our uh, election networks from from outside interference. And that was quite successful. Uh, it was 2018, sorry, the midterms. And in 2020, I think we'll be doing better. So on that part of the threat, I think we've actually, we're in, we're in actually very, very good shape from everybody. The much bigger problem in the United States where it comes to the physical threat to the process of election is quite frankly, voter fraud. Uh, and manipulation. You go to the Heritage website, we've got a huge database on this. So we are way, as Americans, much more responsible for trying to mess with the, the actual election process than uh, successfully than foreigners. So, it a, it, it's, so, an, it's an important point. This has been lost in uh, remembering 2016 because of all the gaslighting that goes on or the attempted gaslighting. 
it was yeah. it was Obama's attorney general, Loretta Lynch, that said there is no evidence that any votes in any of the 50 states were altered by, you know, outside uh, enemies of the state, foreign enemies of the state. No evidence anywhere that any state election system was compromised by the Russians or anywhere else or anyone else. That, that's sort of an important point that uh, I don't think people re- recall properly. Right. The voter fraud, voter integrity, that's an American issue. Uh, again, go to the database at heritage.org. You could, we have a huge database on this. Then there's the disinformation propaganda side. And, and I think we acknowledge that it's there. Uh, I, I will say, I think whatever you want to say about big tech, the major social networking companies have put a lot of effort into identifying Russian trolls, Chinese, la- labeling this stuff, blocking everything else, better job. And then I would also say on the disinformation propaganda side is, look, there are, the megaphone during American political elections is so massive and strong. I'm not sure how the Russian, Chinese, Iranian, whatever, really kind of breaks through. I mean, we spend, you know, people say, well, the Russians are meddling in our election. We spend tens of billions of dollars trying to influence people in our election. And the notion that somehow because the Russians tweet something or the Chinese say something, everybody's just going to stampede and vote for something. I, I, I just don't, I haven't seen the physical, I haven't seen the evidence for that, let alone that it doesn't actually kind of make sense. So yeah, should we chastise them? for doing that? Yeah. Should we punish them? Absolutely. But should we pretend that if we lose, it's because some foreign power took the election? Well, that's actually doing exactly what the foreign power wants, because if there's one thing the Iranians, the Chinese, and the Russians all have in common is they don't have a candidate. Don't be stupid. They want to undermine the confidence and integrity and legitimacy of the American electoral process. So when we start pointing fingers at each other, Essentially, we were just doing their work for them. Uh, what uh, should be the U.S. response to the uh, arrest of the Hong Kong publisher, Jimmy Lai? Well, I mean, I think the U.S. response has been correct all along. I mean, there's very little that we can do to affect the internal politics of, of how the Chinese treat Hong Kong. On the other hand, uh, China has committed two egregious acts. One is massive human rights abuses. And the other is that they violated under international agreements. I mean, the, the agreement under the basic law was not just a commitment to the people of Hong Kong. It was, it was a commitment that, that, that China made to the national community. So I think the United States has to call China out on both of those. And I, I think they, they have appropriately um, uh, put sanctions on individuals. I, I think they should, re- and I think they already are, rigorously complain about the arrests of um, Jimmy Lai and other dissidents, who's, by the way, Jimmy Lai is an amazingly brave and courageous fighter for freedom. I know the man he is. He he could have just fled the country, and he didn't, because he's going to fight for the future of Hong Kong. But um, I think uh, holding the Chinese accountable for their actions, I mean, that's, that's pretty much all we can do. What about uh, that occurrence influencing President Trump's decision on uh, TikTok? TikTok, again, is on a September 15th clock right now and setting aside the couple of points uh, Trump apparently wants for the Treasury, which is ridiculous. But I'll just set that aside, talk about the substance of TikTok and allowing uh, Microsoft to acquire that, letting that get through CIFR. Uh, Reddit CEO Steve Huffman saying that uh, TikTok is a fundamentally parasitic data collection app disguised as social media. Uh, it, it's not just uh, owned by a company that is essentially a part of the Chinese Communist Party. It's also a company that um, allows the CCP to harvest the user data that is collected by TikTok. 
So TikTok, Huawei, and uh, ZTE are part of the mo- modern Chinese information threat. Uh, really up until 2015, they had an army of indisciplined hackers that were basically out there doing a ton of espionage and everything, including economic espionage. In 2015, China reorganized its hacker effort, brought it under the military, made it much more disciplined. And it's it's less about hacking economic espionage per se. I mean, they still do a lot of economic espionage, but they do it with humans. They're into creating basically Hoover vacuum cleaners that can suck up all the information that's available, whether it's encrypted or not, and then they'll bring it back to China and they'll figure out how to use it. Now, the only Chinese companies that are a threat in this new strategy are Chinese companies that have vast access to data in the United States. And they would be Huawei and ZTE if the United States allowed them to fill out the telecom network. And of course, the other is a social networking platform like uh, TikTok, which already has 14 million users and is growing by leaps and bounds. So I think they haven't gone after every Chinese company. They've gone after particular Chinese companies that represent a particular threat to the United States. And it's not a threat based on guessing or anything else. It's a threat based on actually looking at the Chinese doctrine of military fusion, how how they plan to use information and information war, and then understanding that these companies work directly for the Chinese Communist Party and take direction from that. Well, so it's those combination of things that make it the toxic threat that they are. Well, I understand. And, and then so what is the, uh, the the smart policy? What's our understanding? So our understanding, the argument is made, well, if Microsoft acquires it, bringing it under Microsoft control would actually defang it, would make it uh, more manageable in terms of the threat. The reverse is to say, well, TikTok getting in at Microsoft is a way for them to scale. So which is it? And what should we do? Well, I, I, I am sympathetic. I mean, I mean, I talk, I have really good tech guys at Heritage. And I, I am sympathetic to the notion that um, if Microsoft took ownership of the American version of TikTok, that they have the money and the interest uh, and, the, and the capacity and ability, a sense, to address the serious security concerns, which is that TikTok does not become a pipeline for information and just go back to China. I think they could do that. Uh, they, they have the technical expertise to do that. They have the money to do it, and, and they have a financial incentive. They're not in the social networking space. We make them a competitor in that space. Uh, so I, 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 I think that is a perfectly workable solution if that's the path they go down. And it's even good for China because they get, they get a big check. To, you know, not, not like they're giving it away or somebody's stealing it. They're buying it at fair market value. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always for your insights. Appreciate it. Thank you. Profshow.com. Cause they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah, uh, last hour. Our friend Chadwick Moore from uh, Spectator USA sort of foreshadowed at least a portion of uh, this installment of Campus Beat. 
Brooklyn College professor of math education, Lori Rubel, arguing this week on Twitter that uh, two plus two equals four, quote, reeks of white supremacist patriarchy, unquote. We had this discussion with James Lindsay from New Discourses last week uh, where he uh, explained how two plus two may equal four, could equal five. That is a le- actual argument that is being advanced by the Nicole Hannah Joneses of the World 1619 Project founder, as well as academics like this Brooklyn math professor. Two plus two equals four reeks of white supremacist patriarchy. The idea that math or data is culturally neutral or in any way objective is a myth. I'm ready to move on with that understanding who's coming with me, wrote Professor Rubel in another tweet. Along with the, of course, math is neutral because two plus two equals four trope and the related and creepy math is and creepy math is pure and protect math. I'd rather think uh, uh, that reeks of white supremacist patriarchy. I'd rather think uh, on nurturing people and protecting the planet with math and service of those goals. Right. Uh, As Lindsay pointed out as a tweet in response to that, the uh, woke like Professor Rubel need to be held firmly to the point. The feats of engineering like space travel and rocketry utterly depend on accepting stable meanings of mathematical statements like two plus two equals four as objectively true, not mere accidents of culture. Yes, but uh, who will hold them to account? I'll tell you what, who will hold these college professors to account? Maybe the Trump administration will. Maybe just the marketplace will, even more to the point. As uh, the changes that perhaps were afoot in college, more and more families and the young adults in those families reevaluating the value of college at a particular price point. Maybe uh, those like... Lori Rubel, that Brooklyn College math professor, maybe they will be marginalized by a combination of um, of market reaction to what college has become by millions of American families across the country, as well as to how federal dollars could shape college education going forward. With that, I, I reference this piece by Rusty Reno ever first things about how to reform higher education. It's ideas that we've talked about before, some of them at least, but he uh, sort of puts them in a nice punch list for you. Avoid shoveling money into super rich colleges and universities. The 2017 tax bill established a tax on income earned by gigantic university endowments and institutions enrolling 500 or more students that have $500,000 or more in endowment principal per student are subject to a 1.4% tax on their endowment income. Congress should use the same metric of endowment wealth to determine which colleges and universities receive relief funds, COVID relief funds. Remember, $105 billion was agreed to by the Trump administration in negotiations with Capitol Hill Democrats. It just fell apart because they wouldn't agree to the trillion-dollar bailout of state and local governments, as we talked about earlier in the program with uh, Andy Puzder. None that have endowments above $500,000 per student should receive federal money. Stop subsidizing the super rich colleges and universities. Okay. That seems to me marginal, but okay. Uh, Reno goes on to say it's past time institutions put some skin in the game with respect to college financing. Colleges and universities that accept COVID relief funds must be held liable for a significant percent of the principal of student loan defaults. Uh, his point to say, look, these students are betting on you and you're betting on them. And if you're not delivering for them, in other words, they did not get through college. They did not get out into the workforce. They did not get a job that would allow them to 
be self-sufficient and pay back their student loans at the same time, then uh, you're attached. You're at least partially liable. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of a version of the income share agreements, but uh, holding the college rather than private individual or enterprise holding the person account. It's, it's interesting, but I like it. That's sort of the direction Mitch Daniels is voluntarily going. College of the Ozarks goes to attach the outcome for the student to the input that was provided by the student. I like that. Something that doesn't happen in K through 12 education either. Reno goes on. The relief bill should reverse the uh, trend of saving the system. Uh, he t- talks about uh, college being a broken system called the college for all approach. This mentality has led to overinvest in higher education and shortchange vocational education. Something uh, Mr. Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe, has uh, made the point uh, very persuasively as well. The relief bill should reverse the trend, giving priority to community colleges that serve American citizens rather than universities that position themselves as global institutions. Yeah, I think that's uh, right, particularly when it comes to to gen ed and b- because of the price point of community colleges to get your gen ed requirements get in, in pursuit of your associate's degree and perhaps, again, vocational training in addition to that. Focus on, you know, that cohort of post-secondary students. I, I like that, actually. I like the idea of, of a community college investment through the actual students. Uh, also, uh, where we start to pulling back funds from those participating in dubious, uh, those who have dubious relationships. For example, any any uh, university that has professors that are receiving money from the Chinese Communist Thousand Talents Program, these Confucius Institutes and like, that uh, that has to stop. Universities enjoy extraordinary tax advantages, receive federal support through many mechanisms. The American taxpayer should not be asked to subsidize the transfer of intellectual and technology leadership, technological leadership to Chinese communists. Yeah, that seems like a baseline. And so the, uh, the reform would be no college or university that employs the professors receive money from any of these Chinese Confucius Institutes, Thousand Talents programs should receive any relief funds. I like that, too. And again, the market feedback, I think, is going to mean a smaller number of university colleges and universities coming out of COVID-19 whenever that happens and in whatever form it happens. Public universities that receive any relief funding should incorporate the rights of the First Amendment into their bylaws, live up to the promise of the college campus as a free marketplace of ideas, which it certainly is not, generally speaking, at present. And then sanctuary campus policies. You adopt a sanctuary campus policy a la sanctuary cities and states, no relief funds as well. If you're... Um, promoting the uh, subversion of federal law, then why would you receive federal money? Again, very commonsensical. Rusty Reno has a lot of good ideas here. Uh, I I like, and and again, this is an opportunity for private schools at the K through 12 level. This is an opportunity for private schools as well as um, uh, public universities that are interested in actually abiding their, founding mission to uh, their the residents of their states, for example, a real opportunity to uh, reposition and reintroduce uh, as this reimagination of college education is happening, because this idea that people are going to pay 50, 60, 70 grand to send their kid to a college campus to take uh, courses on their computer from their dorm room, uh, that is you know, much like K through 12 education, not having the kids in class and disrupting the lives of parents and retarding the social and intellectual development of students, that is going to have implications. Families are not going to put up with that and pay 
full freight plus continue to be fleeced the way that so many have been fleeced with no ROI discernible on the other end. Uh, it's not going to have it's not just not going to it's not going to happen. Forget whether it's sustainable or not sustainable. People will reject it. People will reject it, and that's going to change the nature of education from pre from PK to post secondary, and uh, it can't come soon enough, as far as I'm concerned. Shake down, break down, take down. Everybody wants into the crowd alive. Break down, take down. You must You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We uh, talked earlier in the program with Andy Puzder about uh, the president's executive orders on COVID-19 relief on $400 per week and enhanced unemployment insurance benefits, the uh, eviction forbearance, the payroll tax suspension. But I wanted to talk about the constitutionality as well. Mnuchin was asked about that on his, with Chris, and, and by the way, uh, coming up, we're going to talk to La, uh, Latasha Fields, who's a, a minister and Christian home educator on the south side of Chicago about the violence in Chicago, also in the context of education, um, to build on the conversation we started at the beginning of the show. But uh, just to get to the constitutionality piece with respect to Trump's executive orders, because we didn't get that to, to that really with Puzzler. We just focused on the uh, straight economic sensibility of the decisions the president made. Uh, on the uh, constitutionality, Mnuchin was asked about it because you've got strange bedfellows. you got Ben Sass. Uh, who calls the executive orders unconstitutional slop. The pen and phone theory of executive lawmaking is unconstitutional slop. And I'm inclined to agree with them. Uh, but people say, oh, unusual bedfellows with uh, Ben Sass and then Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer, and Dick Durbin, all the Democrats invoking constitutional concerns. Well, of course, Ben Sass's invocation of constitutional separation of power concerns is substantive and legitimate for the Democrat socialists on the Hill. It's just craven and convenient. That's the difference. So they're not really coming from the same place, even though they're both presenting somewhat the same opinion. Uh, but here was uh, Mnuchin's response to uh, Wallace on the topic. Well, Chris, let me just say we've cleared with the Office of Legal Counsel all these actions before they went to the president. The president knew unemployment insurance was ending. He said, let's continue at $400. By the way, the 25 percent from the states, they can either take that out of the money we've already given them or the president can waive that. We've been told by the states they can get this up and running immediately. And I would say if the Democrats want to challenge us in court and hold up unemployment benefits to those hardworking Americans that are out of a job because of COVID, they're going to have a lot of explaining to do. Yeah, that's the uh, trickeration of the uh, Trump administration's position, isn't it? Uh, Putting Democrats on defense. Hey, you want to take away the checks that we're going to send out working in consultation with the states? And again, in terms of a three to one distribution, federal government provides three hundred to the four hundred dollars. State provides one hundred and the state administers their respective unemployment systems, as we all saw play out when states were being overwhelmed with the rush of unemployment uh, insurance applications and filings uh, at the beginning of the lockdowns back in March. So that's the process. Trump was you know, pilloried about that on Friday. But he's like, hey, work with the states. They've got to make an adjustment and they should be able to distribute what I've uh, authorized. Here's the thing on on the uh, executive order. I don't like it. I don't like the enhanced benefits at four hundred dollars 
per week because I think it's still a disincentive to work for people who otherwise could be getting back to work. Uh, we talked about that with Andy Puzder uh, at the at the, uh, the first hour of the show. Look, uh, this idea that people are making rational decisions to make a little bit more while they can not working versus working is real. And all you have to do is talk to somebody who actually employs people, the restaurateur, the hotelier, uh, talk to them and they will tell you what a difficult time it is trying to get people to come back to work if they're otherwise making more at home. So it's just it's bad policy. But I'll tell you what, I'd be a little bit more sympathetic to the left on this if they're constitutional concerns weren't so convenient. Also, their celebration of the Roberts court decision this term wasn't so inconvenient, really, in terms of any sort of intellectual consistency they may protest they have. What did the court decide? The Roberts court with Roberts, right? This was heralded by the left. The DACA executive order issued by President Obama, who knew it was unconstitutional, said so at the time. Trump attempts to rescind that executive order and the Roberts court rules that a president cannot rescind even an unconstitutional executive order of a previous president. So Trump on DACA versus Obama on DACA, for example, without going through this, these, the series of administrative hoops. So that's what they celebrated when it was DACA. So now you've seated the precedent on the matter. And as we talked about with John, Yu on this show, UC Berkeley law professor on this show back at the time, well, that just opens the door for Trump to do something like he just did. When it suspend the capital gains tax cut for the rest of the year for, or, or for the foreseeable future and let them litigate it, challenge them to litigate it. They may more be more inclined to litigate tax relief than they are unemployment benefits. But the point is the same. According to the Supreme Court, a subsequent president can't just rescind this without going through administrative hoops. You wanted to put me through those hoops with something clearly unconstitutional in terms of the DACA executive order by President Obama. Then here's your turnabout being fair play. It turns out to be terribly problematic because I think Ben Sass is right about the constitutionality of these this sort of executive lawmaking. But the left has no standing on the issue. And so Trump took advantage of it politically. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Off ramps are now back on. They're back open and the city is uh, cleaning up after a good six hours of lawlessness in River North and the Gold Coast that involved many arrests, many injuries, many stores destroyed or looted. Uh, for more on the topic and a perspective from the South Side, we're pleased to be joined again by Latasha Fields, who's uh, not only a South Side resident, she's also a minister. She's the founder of a Christian Academy and director of Christian Home Educator Support System. She's also the state coordinator of, of Illinois for parentalrights.org. Latasha, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So uh, how did you react to uh, what you saw and heard this morning in terms of the lawlessness in the city? I guess I have the same reaction. What is wrong? What, you know, what is going on? What is wrong with the black community? What is this all about? I mean, many thoughts. I, I'm pretty sure just like everybody, many thoughts. This is insanity. It's just absolutely insanity. I think, and a lot of people may not want to hear it, but I think a lot of what we're seeing with our, with our youth, 
it has to be a part of these progressive liberal policies that are just kind of subverting and undermining the, the black family structure. There, there's no other there's no other explanation of what's happening. And as you stated, you, you got the mayor and you have other politicians that are basically turning a blind eye to this because they, they basically incentivize this type of recklessness, this type of behavior from our kids, because there's no real accountability to what these kids are doing. You know, young, not just kids, teenagers, young adults. This, this is just insanity. I mean, is it racist to note that um, most of the looting that was captured uh, by uh, phones or by TV cameras is young black men and women. Is, is that racist to note that's the fact? No, you have to study the, the, the truth. No, it's not racist. That's what it is. That's what it is. And it's not racist. And that's what I'm saying. Black people have to wake up and realize that, again, a lot of these things, a lot of these behaviors that we're seeing can be contributed. They say it's racism. They say the country is made with racism. No, the country is made with black supporting progressive liberal policies that literally work to oppress our community. That's what the problem is. It's not that the country is in with racism. It's the policies that most black, you talked about of the black community vote against their own demise. That is our problem because, again, with those kids, where are the parents to protest? Where are the communities protest and to say, this is enough? Where is the, if you will, the black village for real to hold accountable to what's happening with our children in these communities? These are policies. These are racist policies that have, that have contributed to the, this demise in the black community. It makes no sense. You're on, you're on I mean, the, I'm black. My yeah. husband's black. I have teenage kids. I know a lot of black families. Our children are not out there destroying things. So that's actually what's the difference. What's the difference in a black family like mine, et cetera, and those black families? We can have that discussion. What is the difference? Right. And so, uh, so your black family and the black families with whom you speak, uh, do they see police as the enemy? Do you want more police or, or less police on the South Side? We need more police because, again, as a, as a black family, I'm not afraid of white people. I'm not afraid that my teenage son that's 13 years old will be killed by a white boy. I'm afraid that my 13-year-old son that's black will be killed by another black boy. So our fear, if you will, is not the racism that's supposedly be in this country. And it's not that you don't have uh, tenets of racism, but that's an individual choice. So we are more afraid of our own black community. So that is ludicrous to talk about defunding the police. Like, for an example, Dan, I live in Washington Heights. I don't feel, feel safe taking my children to a park in my community. So I pretty much go to white communities to take them to play and swing and fly. Because, again, I'm afraid that shooting may just break out, a drive-by shooting may just break out. And so we need, because we're the most vulnerable, we need police protection. Because if something happens, but I can't pull out a policy that state that you defund the police to protect my family. So, Latasha, as school starts in the fall, what do you suggest parents do to help their children if they're mainly, if not completely, at being educated through e-learning? My position on e-learning right now and at this point, so you have these, again, these progressive liberal policies that's taken over our history because we don't understand our children are in school you know, capitalizing $15,000. So they're not being educated. They're being indoctrinated. And so now with this e-learning, we've been meeting with parents. And so my question, I've been meeting with teachers and educators. What, what are you going to do about this inclusive curriculum? What are you going to do about all this social indoctrination where the left have these, this liberal curriculum that they want to enforce our children? And basically, especially with Black Lives Matter at school, that curriculum, 
they want to teach this. They want to incentivize and subsidize this and cause our children to be Marxist and, and have anarchy and unpatriotic dogma. And that is the result of this because when our children are home with us after 3 o'clock or on weekends, bulk of their training, bulk of their character development is coming from public education systems. So parents, now that they're e-learning, I would advise them, sit in front of their computer with your children, listen to what they are teaching their children. Pay very close attention to this false narrative of equality and this inclusion curriculum. Yeah, um, there was uh, some teachers that don't that are now concerned after they promoted uh, e-learning. Now they're concerned that uh, there'll be people snooping who aren't the students on what they're actually teaching remotely, uh, you know, mm-hmm. on screen. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. This uh, Matt Walsh picked it up. This uh, uh, series of Twitter posts by a public school teacher says, you know, we don't want uh, uh, siblings and parents uh, watching what we're doing when we're instructing via the internet our students. Why wouldn't they want to see what you're saying and what you're doing and what you're teaching? What's the big yeah, very, secret? Very, very anti-parent. So we got to understand we live in a society today that's very anti-parent and very anti-American. Again, that's a very good question. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they want to continue to portray that this country is insidious, insidious racist. They want to dismantle the West of the nuclear family. They want to teach these liberal policies to your children. They want to teach this inclusive curriculum with this homosexuality. That's what they want to teach. That is why. Because And then the, I read the tweet. The tweet didn't even say the guy say his chief conservative or conservative parent. That's what we mostly concern about, conservative parents. So it's an anti-parenting system. So my question would be, parents, we're not a question of statement. You need to heavily, heavily consider dropping your children from government schools. They're already at home. Reach out. There's a proliferal resources available. Reach out. Connect with homeschool organizations and groups like mine, wherever, wherever you may be in the United States, and get information on how to teach your own children because this is Absolutely ludicrous. She is Latasha Fields, co-founder and overseer of Our Report Ministries and Publications, founder and teacher of a Christian Academy, and director of Christian Home Educator Support System. Latasha, thanks for joining us. Thank you always for having me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, to close out today, Bill Barr, I mentioned earlier in the program, sat down for an interview with uh, Mark Levin on his uh, Fox News program on Sunday night. I had um, a lot of things to say, some of which you've heard before, but I thought he put it in pretty stark terms about Antifa and uh, the coordinated antisocial, if not domestic terrorist activity that they've been engaged in when you go from um, their physical presence to actually their violent tactics, whether on the streets of Portland or anywhere else, and how they embed with uh, anything that is of left protest nature and then try to use that to escalate from there to create chaos because they're using anarcho tactics to try to usher in some communist utopia. But also, with respect to that, you have to consider the left's unwillingness, as we talked about all morning today and then in Chicago with what happened uh, in, in Chicago and and as we've discussed on this show, their unwillingness to confront the violence, their unwillingness to confront 
the thuggery, their unwillingness to count the illegitimacy, really, of those who are suggesting they're promoting one cause while advancing quite another. And uh, this was uh, Bill Barr on the left from the beginning, from the beginning of Trump's presidency and how it's just gotten more and more extreme, more and more tolerant of unconscionable conduct. They were trying to impeach him from day one. They have done everything they can. They've shredded the norms of our system uh, to do what they can to drive him from office or to debilitate his administration. Uh, and I think it's because of the, the desire for power that the, the left wants power because that is essentially their state of grace and their, <laughs> their secular religion. They want to run people's lives so they can design utopia for all of us. And that's what, you know, that's what turns them on. And it's the, it's the lust for power. And they weren't expecting Trump's victory and it outrages them. Mm-hmm. Among other things that outrage them, like uh, America, <laughs> America's existence, at least in anything resembling its current form. Uh, nice, notable and quotable in The Wall Street Journal on Antifa and The New York Times characterization of it in, over the course of of just two months. The New York Times op ed by Tom Cotton that led to the ouster of the op ed editor at The New York Times. Right. The revolt over Tom. How could Tom Cotton's opinion be? published on the page of the New York Times, uh, they uh, said of Cotton's uh, editorial, the op-ed should have been subject to further substantial revisions. For example, the published piece presents as facts assertions about the role of cadres of left-wing radicals like Antifa. In fact, those allegations have not been substantiated, have been widely questioned. So uh, invoking Antifa and uh, those of a similar disposition, that should have been subjected to more scrutiny, according to the, the editorial about the editorial after the fact back in June. From an August 7th New York Times news story, Antifa, which stands for anti-fascist, is a radical leaderless leftist political movement that uses armed violent protests as a method to create what supporters say is a more just and equitable country. So I I guess Tom Cotton was right. And guess what? So is William Barr, our attorney general. Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.